0: you turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans 8, found on page 1,123. I know I didn't mention this before, but our uh, afternoon service will be at the fair. We're joining uh, the churches that gather, um, as is tradition. And uh, so hopefully you'll, you'll be able to come. Romans chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 28. Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This morning we're going to be looking at a a passage in the Bible that Christians, I I think you could say, have struggled with over the centuries. I know when I was in Bible college and seminary, um, this passage and, and others like it, Got quite a bit of uh, discussion, and uh, there was even some uh, argument. I think about it. Um, I think of any doctrine in the Bible, this is one of the most misunderstood. And so, as we look at this doctrine this morning, I I, I hope you'll be able to celebrate it as our forefathers did, and you might see it as a blessing from God. First of all, though, a, a couple definitions so, so that we're all on the, the same page. Predestination is the doctrine that states how God determines what will happen in human history according to his eternal will and pleasure. So it's more of a, a an overarching thing over all things. And then you have election is a subset of predestination, focusing specifically on God's sovereign choice of who will be included among his people. Now, I think this is where things get a little complicated. Most Bible believing Christians, I, I think if you were to ask them, they would say, Yeah, we believe in predestination. But what it means to them is a little bit different um, according to uh, your Christian tradition. I think the two main ones, though, that, that we often hear about are, are these Calvinism. Teaches that God has, before the beginning of time, set his affection on a remnant of humanity, which the Bible refers to as the elect. And these will be saved because God will irresistibly draw them to himself. And then the other one is Armenianism. God, before the foundation of the world, he looked down the quarter of time and he saw all those who would make a decision for Christ. And so based on that, he chose them because he knew what they were going to choose one day. While election is a, a, a difficult doctrine, I think, to illustrate, I think uh, Nate did a great job um, a little bit earlier with the kids. Um, but here's another one that, that I, I discovered that was put out there by A.W. Tozer. He said, The Christian life is like traveling on an ocean liner. The destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can be changed about it. On board, there are scores of passengers. The passengers are not in chairs. They are completely free to to move about as they will. They eat, sleep, play, lounge about the deck, read, talk, all together at their pleasure. But all the while, the great liner is is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. The degree of enjoyment enjoyment during the voyage will be determined by the choices they make. Understand that the choices determine character. The choices you make as a chosen child of God will determine the direction, happiness, and success of your spiritual life. And so as we dig into this passage... Um, for the time being, I'm going to skip over verse 28, but we'll come back to that just a little bit later, and we're going to jump right into verse 29. And there we'll find uh, five verbs that Paul uses to describe our salvation and, the, and what God does in, as part of it. And this morning, we're going to be focused on, focusing on uh, um, what it says there about how God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified us. So let's begin with the foreknowledge of God, which I'm going to pair with predestination. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, Paul is clearly saying that predestination is dependent on God's foreknowing. And so we've got to keep that in mind. But what does that mean? Let me look at a, a couple other places where we find this same idea in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 8.3 but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now in this verse, loving God is evidence that you have been chosen by God. That God loved us is um, and, and chose us. That That's in the past tense. And, and so it's the idea that there's no way we can even love God unless God first calls us and chose us and calls us to follow him. Genesis 8.17 The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? You might remember we looked at this some months ago. Sodom and Gomorrah. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through him. For I have chosen him. Now the word chosen there is the same word in other places that, that's put down as, as known. And so that that idea, I think, is is the same. Being known by God, being chosen by God to be His child. Or Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you with all your iniquities. So what's the context in that one? God choosing Israel and entering into a covenant relationship with them. But it's not just this strict thing of of... Um, Formality—it's—it's it's a love relationship, and that's what we have to keep in mind. Or Jeremiah one five, where God says, "Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you; before you were born, I set you apart." Now, if I said I had foreknowledge, it would mean that I had advanced information about something that was going to happen. If I knew that the stock market was going to crash, well then hopefully I would take my money out of anything that looked kind of risky and put it into something that's safe. That's what we think of as, as foreknowledge. But God is not a creature of time as we are. For God, all eternity is present to Him. He delivers and predestines, moving through time like it's standing still. He's not bound by time as we are. So when we speak of God's foreknowledge in the Bible, it's never used as advanced knowledge of what one would or might do. God foreknows what will be because God's decreed what shall be. It's according to His will. We might be tempted to think that God foreknew those who would make a decision for him, but that's not the context here. And if we, we, we went with that idea, then what's the reason for calling? There really is no reason. And, and so when we look at it in, in perspective, in, in context, we have to look for another answer to that. Never does Scripture say God chose the elect because they were holy and righteous. Rather, he chose the elect to be holy and righteous. I hope you heard the distinction of that. He's not calling us because we are holy and righteous. Somehow we're better than others. No, he calls us in order to make us holy and righteous, to make us more like Jesus. That's what we saw last week in Ephesians 2, 1. Well, actually, we we, we were looking at total depravity last week, and, and we saw in chapter 2. Um, that because of our sin, we're, we're totally de- depraved. But if you back that up one chapter to Ephesians 1, listen to what it says in verse 4. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be, to become, Holy and righteous. See, from beginning to end, God gets all the glory when it comes to our salvation. We can't take any of it for ourselves. It's that work of the Holy Spirit within us, regenerating our hearts, so that we are able to respond to that call. See, because of total depravity, which we looked at last week, our, our every inclination is not to want anything to do with God. But because God has begun that good work, begun that good work in us, now we can respond. God knew you before you were born. He had a plan for your life. He chose you before the beginning of creation, before the beginning of time. He chose us not because, again, we're better than others. He chose us according to his will. Do we totally understand that? No. But you know what? God is God. And sometimes his ways are higher than our ways and and we don't understand. But having said that, you know, we don't know who God has called unless we we see the the love of Christ in them, unless we see the Holy Spirit working. And and so we need to treat everybody as someone who might come to know the Lord. Second thing I want to look at is how God calls us to Himself. In our passage, Paul refers a number of times to uh, God's call in salvation. Verse 28, We were called according to His purpose. Verse 30, Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified and glorified. Before we look at some other passages, uh, let's look at uh, our passage in in, uh, Romans. Let's uh, look at some other passages where we find, again, that same idea of of calling. I I think it's important to to ground this in Scripture, especially when we're dealing with something like this that, that can be a little bit controversial. Luke 14. Here we find the the parable of the great banquet. In this parable, the master sends out invitations, inviting people to the banquet. Apparently the call was initially accepted, but when it came time for the banquet, people started to decline. They had excuses. No, I cannot come. I, I just bought a field. I just bought a cow. I just got married. When the master heard this, he says he says very angrily that to his other servants that now he was going to call those that were not called. Those that he had originally called, they, they were not going to be part of the banquet because of their, their refusal. Now, in this parable, that's a, a general call that goes out to all the world. At the end of that parable, some refused. They wanted no part in the banquet. And that's part of that general call. That's the call of, of that we've been called to in evangelism, to go out into all the world and proclaim the good news. That's a general call. It's God who makes it specific so that people can respond. Remember the story of when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus when jesus commanded them to roll the stone away remember Mar- mary uh, objected lazarus he's been dead for 4 days and he's going to stink it's going to smell and i'm sure in that climate that that was something that would would happen but what did jesus do in in that story he went and called lazarus name now when he called lazarus what did lazarus lazarus do he came out of the tomb, even though he was dead. He responded to God's call. Now, if you and I had been there, and we called out Lazarus' name, Lazarus wouldn't have moved. He would have stayed right there in that tomb. But because it was Jesus, because of his authority, Lazarus came out, despite the the grave clothes. When God calls your name, your name, There's no refusing. When God spoke at at creation and said, let there be light, the darkness fled. The same thing happens when God says, let there be grace. Let there be salvation. The hardest hearted sinner, He gives way to the voice of God and, and to His river of love. You ever seen a creek that was dry, and suddenly, because of the rains, it just swelled and became full. I remember when we were out west, um, at the last church I was at in in Tohatchee, there was a a creek that ran below the church in, in this canyon. And even though it wasn't raining near us, if it was raining back in the mountains, it was amazing how after a little while, suddenly that creek would start to run and it would fill. And Well, after one really heavy rainstorm back in the mountains... I heard this noise and I remember walking over to the creek and you wouldn't believe all the things that, was coming, that were coming down the creek. There was mud, there was trees, and, and even the rocks, big boulders. They were bouncing off each other as the, the force of the water pushed those rocks down. Now if I had gone into that creek and said, I'm going to stop this water, and even if I had a piece of plywood and I, I stood there, what would have happened to me? I'd have gone down the river with the rest of the stuff, right? I'd have been added to what was already piling up. That's what it's like to stand against the river of God's love. It overwhelms. You can't stop it. And why would you want to stop it? Because in that love we're we're called to be his, to be his children, sons and daughters of the king, adopted sons and daughters. What an amazing privilege that we've been called to. And it should fill us with with excitement. It should fill us with joy that God loves you that much. That He's willing to send His Son so that love might come. And so when God calls, there's no refusing it. There's no stopping it. We've talked before about the hound of heaven, and and that's Jesus. Jesus. He won't let go once He places His hand on you. You might stray for a while, but He's going to pull you back because of His great love for us. Which means without God's call, we cannot respond. Without His Spirit at work within us, there's no way we want anything to do with with God or the things of the kingdom. Reason for that, again, is because of our sin. And while we deserve, we all deserve hell, like Nate so clearly pointed out, we all deserve that destiny. But God, in His grace, God, in His mercy, He called some to follow Him. Hopefully, He called each of you to follow Him. And our lives should show evidence of it the fruit of our faith. It's not something you just claim and know and Okay, let's put it up on a shelf, but now we need to live it out. And we're called to, in turn, show that love to others. To those God has brought into our lives. See, salvation is not our doing. Like I said before, God gets all the credit. But we respond to it by living for Him. Living in gratitude. Listen quickly to a couple more verses. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you hear that? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then again a little later in verse 65. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. Acts 13.48 When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Acts 16.14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatra, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the good news of the gospel. The Lord opened her heart. See, again, on our own, we want nothing to do with Him. There's others, but I, I think you get the idea. Dr. Harry Ironside, he, he told of a man who gave his testimony at a, at a revival. And as he told that testimony, he talked about how God loved him and, and found him and called him and saved him, delivering him, cleansing him, calling him to himself. It was a tremendous testimony to the glory of God and to the work of God in his life. And after the meeting, one rather legalistic brother came up to him and says, I, I appreciate your testimony. I, it was great. He says, but everything you said was what God does. What, what do you have to do? What is your part in salvation? And the man says, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to uh, mislead you. He says, I really should have mentioned that. He says, my part was running away, and God's part was running after me until He found me. Third, in and, and those He has called, He has justified. What does it mean that Christ justified us? basically means in Christ we were declared righteous. Our sins were washed away. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. Which means one day when you stand before the throne of God and He looks at the book of life, and He looks at your page, what is He going to see there? What's going to be written? Nothing. He's only going to see the blood of Jesus. Because we've been cleansed. We've been made righteous. We've been justified through Christ Jesus. And because we were justified and and given a new identity in Christ... The Bible says now we've been glorified with Him. Glorified in Christ Jesus. Notice the language in verse 30 is is past tense. Paul is so certain about this, that we're going to be glorified, that he's talking about it like it had already happened. And and in one sense it did, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, but we're going to also have to wait until Christ comes again and calls our name where we will be glorified with Christ. And we're going to be asked with Christ to rule, to be kings and queens over all that God has made, over all creation. It's amazing when you think about it, His great love for us. And for those who have been, been glorified, you can be certain now of what Paul said Back in verse 28, which I skipped over. And we know that those who love God, all things will work together for their good. You can be certain of that. Paul just got done explaining what God was going to be doing in in your life, in your heart. And because of that, we have that confidence that salvation is ours that all things will work for our good. And when you pair this with Philippians 1.8, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What a, what a reason for comfort assuring us of our salvation in Jesus. We don't have to doubt it. We don't have to wonder about it. We can be certain about it because of God's love for us. So let me close by, by naming a couple benefits of this doctrine. First election eliminates the need to boast. You know what? It's not about us. God gets all the glory. We can't even respond without God's help. With God enabling us through the Holy Spirit. And so He gets all the glory. When we try to say that some of it is our doing, then we we, we take some of that glory from Him. That's why Paul says, "...for it is by grace you have been saved through faith." This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Second, election reminds us of just how much God loves us. If salvation is somehow our own doing, our effort, again, then our, our, our love for God will be diminished by that amount. If it is all God, then all we can do is be grateful. For the gift we've received. To reach out in faith and make it our own. The gift is God's. We had nothing to do with putting that gift together, but we have to reach out and accept it and make it our own. And that's what faith is all about. That's what Romans 5.8 teaches. God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Third, no believer is too bad that he can't be saved. No believer is too bad that he can't be saved. Sometimes it's amazing what God's people are capable of. The sin that we can even commit. But in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. And for those who don't know Christ yet as their Lord and Savior, what good news that is. It doesn't matter what's in their past. There's forgiveness in Jesus. It's like the love which God used to pursue Jonah. Unwilling to let him go. Chasing him across the sea. Chasing him down to the depths of the sea. That's a love the Father has for us. For each of us who have been called. Finally, this teaching encourages us in our evangelism. It means we can... uh, Proclaim that good news with confidence, because you know what? It's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about you saying it just perfectly, presenting the gospel presentation. It's not about that. It's about the Holy Spirit working, using us. We're called to be His mouthpiece. Or a better way to think of it, think of fishing. You're called to cast your line out on the water. God's going to bring the fish. You don't have to worry about that. You just have to be faithful and keep casting and keep sharing the good news about Jesus. And so it should fill you with boldness because it's not about you. But we still have to be the mouthpiece of God. You still have to open your mouth. You still have to be willing to go. And I think that's what we forget sometimes. You might remember last week I I talked about how one pastor in my my last church... uh, um, in this fellowship of pastors in, in, in the community we were at. Um, once I introduced myself, he, he said something like, oh, you're one of the frozen chosen. What did he mean by that? That we think in his mind that we don't have to do any evangelism because we know we're saved and who God's going to call, they're saved. And so forget about evangelism. That's not what it teaches in the Bible, though. We've been called, we've been saved, we've been glorified. And so now in response to that, we need to go out and proclaim that good news. To tell others about Jesus. So that they can join us before the throne of God. Scripture is clear, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. It's totally dependent on God and I'm glad it is. I'm glad it is totally dependent on Him. Because how could you ever know if you've done enough? How could we ever know if we're worthy enough to be in heaven? But that's the good news. It's not about us, it's about the righteousness of Jesus that covers over us, of God calling us to be His. Praise God for the doctrine of election, because it affirms God's timeless grace and assures you that our future is firmly in God's hands, and we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to yourself, to be yours, to be your children. Lord, what a, what a privilege this is, and we pray, Lord, that, that we might in turn be used by you to bring others to the cross of Jesus bringing them before your throne. Father, we just thank you for loving us so much. Father, we just pray that that might be the hallmark of our lives. May we be known by our love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.